Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had, had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. When then shall we say, is God unjust? Or, sorry, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is the word of the Lord. So yesterday, and I look outside today, so I'm going to give away the answer. Um, what was noteworthy about yesterday or the last few days in our midst, in, in and around Vancouver? The fog. It's been around long enough. It's an inversion, right? often happens at this time of year. If you go up Grouse Mountain or Seymour, or you'll be above and you can see the city just uh, covered in cloud. And, and it's beautiful at first, but then it gets to be a bit like, oh, now I can't see it. I'm tired of not being able to see, or it's a little more difficult to drive. Yesterday was interesting for uh, many of you experienced this, um, but I felt at most I was out in Cloverdale for Allison's grandfather's uh, memorial service. And uh, at the top of the hill in Cloverdale, it was sunny and bright. And then as you moved down to the bottom, it was just like 
entering winter, all the trees were still covered in that frost like you see. Um, but where the sun had, had uh, shone for, had broken through for any more than an hour or two, it was just a totally different scene. When you come out of the fog like that, it can feel, if you've been in it for a few days, remember the forest fires was, was just last summer, right? And it was like, oh, you'd wake up in the morning and, oh, no, I still can't see. It was worse then because it's smoke. But when you come out of the fog, even like yesterday uh, or this morning, I walked up here this morning and it was perfectly clear. You could see grouse, you could see everything, and it just felt so good. And then about an hour after being up here, I looked out and it was just closed in again. And when you come out of that fog, if you felt it for a couple or a few days, there is a sense, maybe you don't all feel this, but I feel a sense, I think you can identify with it, a sense of relief. It's like, oh, right, okay. We're returning today to our series from last year, and I don't just mean last week, but it was uh, last year before the summer. Returning to our series from the book of Romans, a series that we've called the Christian Gospel, Fully Alive. The book of Romans speaks against this idea, uh, which I'm, I'm sympathetic to in some ways, the idea that God can't be known. So sometimes we say in our faith, if you think you understand God, then the thing that you have grasped is not God, because God can't be fully understood by humans. So I accept that. In fact, I live by that in some ways. You can become quite arrogant, or you can walk around with a faith like a little bit of a spiritual know-it-all in the world, like everybody else is ignorant and we know, if, if you have that kind of idea. Well, we've got God figured out. So there's always mystery to God. But the Christian gospel, like emerging from the fog, says there are things and some very important things that can be known about God and God's interaction and relationship with humanity. And the book of Romans will spell those things out. And if you give it any time and attention, and did you listen to that reading from Keith? I hope you did. It's not easy. And if you don't know your Bibles and you don't know the Old Testament, what is this? Right? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated and you know, I'm going to give mercy to some people and harden other people. And it seems tough to make sense of it all. But if you give Romans any time at all in any study, you'll see that what's happening is the clarifying of things about God and God's relationship to humanity, to us. We're taking up part two. The book of Romans speaking against this idea that I call kind of an agnostic faith. So it's not quite agnostic in that, well, I don't know if there's a God or not, but it brings a kind of agnosticism in, well, I believe in God, but I don't really know much other than that. And that's just rampant. It's all over the place right now. And Romans will say, no, no. There are things you can know about God, and the Christian gospel makes things clear about the Christian concept of God. Merging from this fog, and now I can see. And it's January 3rd, and have you resolved things yet? You say, yes, I have. I've already broken all of those things that I've resolved. The purpose of resolution is to say, from now on. From now on, I'm going to focus on what really matters in life. <laughs> really? <laughs> From now on. That's great. Anyhow. Uh, and, and often resolutions work around a few things. Work, right? Or health. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat better. Or kind of how I spend my time. I'm going to binge watch less or more, as the case may be. Last week, Keith 
uh, called us to pay attention to that call of wisdom. James referred to it in calling us to worship. What is it that we should really desire? And not that many resolutions that I hear. I mean, you hear constant ones about going to the gym or something, but not a lot of resolutions saying, I'm going to seek to become more wise. Which means that you understand how you, you don't know, right? It doesn't make you more arrogant. It makes you less so. But I'm going to seek wisdom. How many resolve that? The Christian gospel lays out the way things are. And then the Christian gospel will lay out how we are to live in light of that. The first part, how things are. And the second part, which we're joining now, although today will be mostly review. I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time in in what Keith read to us. Uh, So the way things are, and then secondly, how we're to live. So the review. Well, the first thing to say about the Christian gospel is that the claim it makes is this. Now, and, and so you have to understand this as a claim, and you, you accept it by faith. This, is all, this all depends upon faith. Well, it doesn't depend upon faith, but the way to understand it is faith. And the first thing that the Christian gospel claims is that this is not a truth among other truths. It's not a thing, a something, among other things. So in other words, here are all these philosophies or ideologies and the Christian gospel is one among those many things. Now, if you're not a Christian, you, of course that's how you think about it. And I accept that. And you say, Todd, you're sounding a little um, superior here, like, like, I, like you know and we don't. But in faith, the Christian gospel is not a thing among other things or a truth among other truths. It seeks to say, this is the way that things are. It's the light of the world. One of my problems with what I see often presented as Christian faith, and so I'll, I'll, I'll hear declarations of Christian faith or calls to Christian faith, and I'll think, okay, I'm, I'm a brother of these people. That's, that's my brother and sister in Christ, but I don't really think like that. I don't know if you ever share this type of thing. And where I feel that often, and those who've been around this church long enough as I've been here, We'll, we'll kind of know this, but I'll, I'll outline it a bit more clearly with this. Much of what I see presented as Christian faith sounds to me like the gospel is small and, and a lot of other things are big. So the big picture that I see presented often is, and it's not, and some, would say, some people would say, well, it's not like this enough, but the big picture can be kind of bad. Sin, hell, damnation, right? The way that the world actually is is, kind of bad, bad, bad. And the gospel is this thing that you can use to kind of save yourself or God will save you by the gospel in this big picture which is actually quite bad. Here's my problem with that as I hear it and understand it. It makes this thing big and the gospel quite, in my, quite small. It's just this, this, this fixed thing for the big bad world. The Christian gospel, as I understand it from the book of Romans, says it's not that this is the way things are. If you want to know the way things are, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the way things are. It takes this thing and says, this is the truth of the world. And if you can live in darkness, but that's a much smaller thing and it's tragic if you don't know this truth. See the difference? The gospel sets a question mark against all other truths. 
So how do you experience this? Well, there's a truth that's declared in our world right now that success equals financial success. Money. You see it in churches. I saw a movie, The Big Short. It's fantastic, by the way. But you know what it shows? It shows that, and, and apparently it's quite accurate to, to what happened in 2008 in the housing crisis. It shows that to the, to the highest ranks of power in our world, there is an absurdity. It's not just sin. It's absurdity. It's foolishness. It's childishness. But some of these people, or many of them, are still held up as, what would you say, successful. Why? Because they know how to make money. So money is a truth in our culture. It's become that. The gospel will set a question mark against it and say, and show you. And this is what I, when I was watching the movie, I, I, I felt this in, in the Holy Spirit. This is absurd. It sets that question mark. Or the concept that, well, what, it, what, what really matters in life is to be a good person. The gospel will set a question mark against that. It's not asking you to not be a good person, but it's saying being a good person is, is um, there's a, a different degree of foolishness than the absurdity I talk about with this financial corruption. But the idea that any one of us can say of ourselves or someone else, this, I'm a really good person. The gospel will say, what will the gospel do with that? Well, what about sin? You know the truth of who you are? You have a self-centeredness about you. You live with a fear that shows that you don't necessarily understand the gospel. You're a good person. When Jesus was asked that, good teacher, he said, oh, don't call me good. No one's good but God. That's how Jesus replied, do you think of yourself as good? The gospel puts a question mark there. Or one that's really kind of big in our world today, the concept of happiness. I just want my kids to be happy. Um, I don't want my kids to be unhappy, but what I want them to know is, is some kind of meaning in life. And it's not easy, right, as a parent to get there. I, I, I get that. It would be easier to just force God up upon people. But it's not just happiness we should want for one another. It's some sense of meaning. What I want for people is gospel. Now, this doesn't always bring happiness, but it does bring joy. The gospel sets a question mark against all other truths, and it is the power unto salvation. It requires faith. The gospel is always received. Then, and I'm, don't, as I say, don't worry, I'm not going to spend a ton of time in, in nine. We'll get there later in ten and onwards. This review is pretty important to me. Then we get to early in Romans, and if you have your Bibles, you can flip back Romans 1 into 2. We get to this concept of the wrath of God. And so good non-religious people would say, here we go, we're going to hear about God's wrath, and he's going to smite us. And, and, it, and Romans will say, the wrath of God is being revealed against unrighteousness. And it's going to outline two kinds of unrighteousness, two main types, two foolishnesses. I, I made that word up. Two types of foolishness. One is the elevation of humanity, the flesh. So this is the elevation of appetite, what I want. If I can get what I want, that means I've made it. The elevation of celebrity, which has now become just character. Now people can be celebrities for no reason except that they're celebrity. It's just all right there. The, the antithesis of the gospel is right there in our world. And we chase after it. The elevation of humanity, of flesh, 
things like worshiping nation or ideology or politics. In some degree, it's all an elevation of self. That's one kind of foolishness. The second kind of foolishness is the elevation of religion. And, and as we move into Romans 2, it's going to talk about that and say, look, you church people, you religious people, who go, yeah, that, you know, those people who worship Kim Kardashian, they're so bad, or they don't have it right. And, and what Romans is going to say is, wait a minute, who do you think you are because you're trying to get to God by religion? You just flip the coin around. And instead of kind of serving appetite, now you're ser- like you just, the appetite of flesh, you're serving the appetite of religion. You're going to follow rules to get to God. You're going to be judgmental towards other people to get to God. You're going to think of yourselves, this is, this is a really troubling thing to the Christian gospel, you're going to think of yourselves as better. Romans will call those two things the same thing. Unrighteousness. Just put them both together. This is unrighteousness. And against that, God's wrath has been revealed. What does that mean? God's going to smite everybody? It doesn't mean that in the book of Romans. It means these things lead to the same place. They lead away from the Christian gospel because there's a dependency upon humanity instead of a trust in God. They lead to emptiness and darkness. And then in chapter 3, the book turns. Especially verse 21. You get these words. So this is where the unrighteousness leads in chapter 3, verse 21. But now. And even as I say that but now, because I know what's coming, I feel the power of the Holy Spirit. But now. Because this scene on our own, whether it's flesh or religion, is hopeless. But. And so I say, oh God, are you going to provide a way? But now, Romans says, a righteousness from God has been revealed. The outline of the Christian gospel. God has not left us in ourselves, but he has turned towards us in Jesus Christ. A righteousness from God has been revealed, and this righteousness is Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. The verdict... This, let me help you understand Jesus Christ in another way that you don't often hear in church, but this is true. Jesus Christ is the verdict of God. Do you know that? See, you think of your own behavior. I did this good thing, so God's pleased with me. I did this bad thing, so God's not pleased with me. Right? You think of yourself too highly and too much. The verdict of God on humanity is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has not turned away from us. He has turned towards us. And the proof of that is the coming of Jesus, the manger, and particularly the cross. In Jesus Christ, the mercy of God triumphs. In him, we behold the faithfulness of God in the depths of hell. So people ask me, what do you think on the nature of hell? I'll just be be very clear with you. The Bible is not exactly clear on the nature of hell. And the Old Testament believes something very different than some of the things the New Testament seems to present. I know this for sure. Because of the love of Jesus Christ, everything changes. The depths of hell are no longer the same when he's done. In him we behold the faithfulness of God in the depths of hell for all. And the for all is the second quote I have there. Precisely when we realize that we are sinners, do we perceive that we are brothers. This is written, you know, that we are brothers and sisters. 
And God can only be known when people of all ranks are grouped together on one single step. And we know this, and the book of Romans is clear on this, we know this in one way, by faith. By faith. There is, in Christian understanding, conversion. I didn't see before, but now I see. Now, what has happened in that? Has the gospel changed at all? Just because you didn't see it and now you do? No. God hasn't done anything different for you when you didn't see or when you did see. You became awakened to what God has done. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ so you can know salvation. Chapter 4 Romans will go into talking about Abraham because much of the book of Romans uh, deals with a number of contrasts. One is the contrast, uh, the distinction between uh, law, you would say uh, law and flesh, right? Religion and our trusting in ourselves. And so often there there would be this uh, search for people saying, well, we're, we're the ones that really understand. And they would use Abraham, the father of the Jews. That's how people that Paul was writing to would think. And say, well, we're really the insiders because we're the children of Abraham. So what's going to happen in chapter 4 is Paul is going to say, Abraham is the father, but Abraham's the father of faith. So that it's not just people who belong to this particular religious group who, who can be called children of God, but it's those who trust in this Christian gospel, who trust in Jesus Christ. He's the father of faith. And even Abraham, by faith, he believed. And God, you know the rest of the, right? And God credited it to him as righteousness. Chapter 5 gives a description of a new person. That this faith in the gospel then will transform us. So now that I see that this is the truth of the world, I am awakened to it. I'm, I, there, I undergo this conversion But I'm not just changed, I'm transformed. I heard Tim Keller giving an illustration of this. I was listening to a sermon this week. I listen to sermons when I drive sometimes. That's how how pastorly I am. And uh, Keller gave gave a great example. He said, he was talking about what it means to be born again. And he said, um, we, we sometimes think of it this way. Imagine yourself, you have an apple orchard and you think, well, next year make it a New Year's resolution. Next year, instead of apples, my orchard's gonna gonna give peaches. And so the way to do that is I'm going to work on it extra hard. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to water it. I'm going to, it's going to, I'm going to take care of this orchard so well. What's going to happen? You're going to get bigger apples. So no, okay, I'm going to prune then. I'm going to prune because pruning, well, I'm, then I don't want apples, I want peaches. What's going to happen? You're going to get more apples. It's not just, and this is how religion treats it, you see. Try to be a better person. Make these resolutions about yourself, spiritually, religiously, whatever. And some of you have lived a lot of the so-called Christian life in that arena. The gospel will transform you. And chapter 5 begins to describe that new person. And the contrast from law and gospel, which is the real contrast of the book, unrighteousness and righteousness. Now the the contrast is played out in Adam and Christ in chapter 5. And the question is put before us. If sin came through Adam, we go check, 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 everybody's sin, you know, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, right? 
Everybody's a sinner. So sin came through Adam and Eve. Check. Here's the question Romans puts before you. If sin came through Adam, how much more? You see it already? You feel it already? Will life come through Christ? Sin's not the big story. I have no problem accepting the fact that I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a wreck. Almost as bad as you guys. Maybe worse. But it isn't the big story. If sin came through Adam, and then it should ring in our ears, how much more will life and salvation come through Christ? So chapter 6, see how quickly we're reviewing? Chapter 6, we're reminded then, we are not under sin, but under grace. And grace is not... Here's a, a good and quick definition from my favorite theologian. Grace is not you must do something. Those of you who've, who've uh, you know, encountered grace, particularly after a religious upbringing or something, you feel free in this. I don't have to do anything. Grace is not you must do something. That's true. Hallelujah. But grace is also not you don't need to do anything. You don't understand grace if you think that way. Grace is this. God has done something. That's grace. And now you trust in what God has done and live your light in life you live your life in light of that grace. And so chapter 8. Now since Christ is in you, we're almost at chapter 9 already. Now since Christ is in you, you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. This Christian gospel, the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. Now since Christ is in you by faith, your life is in what? Or who? Whom? Your life is in the Spirit now. Not the flesh. And Romans will continue. You want to describe what the Holy Spirit is like? That same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you. And you're worried about going back to work tomorrow. Or whatever else it is. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you. And it's not just in you. Singular, by the way, in Scripture. It's in you. It's in us. The spirit of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 8 will finish. And no matter what, it ends in this crescendo, this, this elevated, at least, note. After outlining the Christian gospel... Then there's this like seal that's going to be placed. And this nothing, nothing, nothing at all ever. Once you've trusted in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The next part is troubling. Because then it's going to give a list of things that might happen to you. Tribulation might happen. Suffering might, suffering will happen. Sorry. Tribulation might. Suffering will. Famine might happen. Persecution might happen. Violence might happen. It, it actually goes pretty far. If you read the end of Romans 8, it uses this language. It says, even if we are, quote, killed all day long. What does that mean? I think you could just be killed for part of the day. Like once you're killed, you don't need to be killed again. 
But that's how, that's how much Paul wants to emphasize this, nothing can separate you. Even if we're killed all day long, we face this kind of difficulty, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors. This is the Christian gospel. So now, the rest of the book, Paul's going to continue and say, so once we understand this, how then are we to live? And he's going to start with this discussion on who is the church. That's really, if I wanted to summarize what Keith read to us, it's who is the church. Paul's got this anguish about other Jewish people that don't believe in Christ. But the question is, who does God call for the church? He outlines the gospel and opens with some sorrow in this next section. Because his question is, to himself, to God, a prayer. How come some people, how come many people don't see this gospel, this hope for the world? Even those I love, Paul will say, my brothers and sisters, that he, and he's talking about in terms of his, his Jewish background, there's a way in which this means these other people. He'd been a religious leader. He uses the words, he says, I have unceasing anguish because some of them do not see. Now, I'm going to carry that unceasing anguish. I've seen, I've experienced that in the church, uh, that some people for their children, for their grandchildren, for loved ones, face this anguish. Why don't they see this gospel? I don't have a lot to say to you other than you're in good company. Paul talks about this as well. But there's a question in it at least. Do you want people to see? Do you want people to know? And I have a warning for you. If you want people to see the Christian gospel, don't give them fear. Because that's not gospel. If you want people to see the Christian gospel, don't give them fear. What's this anguish that Paul's talking about? Do you want people to know? Do you want people to be awakened to the Christian gospel? That is what I want. It's my desire in my life. Even as I want to reject what I see as tyrannical depictions of God, a God who's out to get us, he's going to get us. The, way, the main thing we know about God is, this is, this is um, some people call this a pagan presentation of God. God's going to get you because he really doesn't like people. But thankfully, Jesus comes in and prevents his father's action. My main problem with that is it makes God and Jesus into two completely different characters. If you want people to know the Christian gospel, don't present fear to them. Paul says, I want people to know. I want people to see. We need that longing in our church. We want people to know this gospel. But that when you say that, you would be compelled not by fear, but by hope. And then this section, how to live, that God is working. That's the key part of this first part of chapter 9. Our standing, I think this is in verse 16, our standing before God depends not on human will, but on God and God's mercy. Jesus Christ is the verdict of God. In other words, God is doing something. And now we have this question, who is the church? The church is a vigorous, extensive attempt to humanize the divine. This is our call. Isn't this a great call? That the love and grace and salvation and hope and peace that we've experienced 
in, in, in becoming awakened to this gospel, we get to, we're called to humanize that divine nature as we live our lives. Our call is to serve the Christian gospel even more than serving the church. And I say that as a pastor. And trust me, I want people to sign up for coffee and Sunday school teachers and everything else because it's better for me if the church runs well. But I want you to understand first, your first service isn't even to the church. It's to the Christian gospel. Humanizing the divine. Do people in our world around North Vancouver mostly believe in God? Your friends who don't attend church, do they believe in God? What would your answer be? I mean, really the answer is kind of. Maybe. Not really. I don't think so. Along those kinds of lines. It might be yes for some. But in general, a cultural answer. It's not the first question, do other people believe in God? It's not ever the first question for Christians. It's not of consequence. If you believe the Christian gospel, you don't need people around you to believe in God. I mean, God blesses us that we do have a community of faith. But if you believe the Christian gospel is true, you don't have the fear that the world is going to head somewhere terrible. Because, like, in the end. Because you believe what God says about history in the world. So the first question isn't, do other people believe in God? The first question is, how can I heed this call to humanize the divine? And the term, mentioned it earlier, being born again comes up. That we would be born of the Spirit, not just flesh. What does it mean? Jesus used this term when he was speaking to Nicodemus. Remember in John chapter 3? That's where we get John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. You can't just be born of flesh. You must be born again. Or the translation can mean born of spirit, not just flesh. But what's born again come to mean? This is a troubling stat. Again, from Keller's sermon that I listened to recently. Mentioning that 70 to 80% of Americans, so we can use the Canada card here and go, yeah, we're different. But 70 to 80% of Americans say they don't want a born-again Christian as their neighbor. Uh-oh. Why? Uh, well, Keller gives two reasons, and I, I tend to agree with him. He says because the meaning of born again is totally different in, in people's experience than what it was as Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. What it's come to mean is one of two things, Keller says. It means either having experienced some emotionally charged experience, like I went through this big um, supernatural conversion experience or whatever it might be, but that has made me feel very different than you. And so, in a sense, your neighbors feel like they're down here and you see yourself as, as having experienced something and they need it, that can be off-putting to people. Secondly, born again can, can come to mean in our world a moral rigidity. I think this one is more common for us. That it can mean that one of the reasons they don't want that born-again neighbor is they're going to be always kind of, oh, oh my, my non-believing neighbor is not living right. A judgmentalism. There is a call in this faith, this being born of spirit, this hearing of the Christian gospel to conversion. But the call is now to reflect not something that is just off-putting. And it is true that Scripture says that to this 
this uh, trusting in the flesh, the Christian gospel will be an offense. It will, be, it will look like the absurdity when, when it's trusting in the flesh that's truly absurd. So I'm okay with still offending people. I just want to offend people with God's love. <laughs> Reflecting this love of God in the world, humanizing the divine. The gospel now in all of our interactions that it is impossible to be Christian and anti-person. How? And yet this is not what a lot of people pick up from Christian faith. It is impossible to be Christian and anti-person. Why do I say that? Because if God was anti-person, there'd be no Jesus. There'd be no plan of salvation. So how do you think, having experienced this salvation, you can now live as if God is against others? God has turned towards us in his infinite love shown in Jesus Christ. The definition of his character in John, the, in, in 1 John, loving us all the way to the cross, Jesus as the verdict of God. And so by faith we can know Jesus Christ in the gospel. So as we enter into then how are we supposed to live, this is the first presentation is hear that gospel and determine, seek, be committed to, Asking God that you would be a reflection of this divine love in the world. So we hear the call together. Do you hear this call? First Sunday in January 2016. From now on, everything's going to be different. I mean, it won't be. But I do pray that we'll hear this call. That we have this tremendous privilege, even as Sutherland Church, even just this small gathering of people. We have this spiritual call in our interaction with one another and as we welcome people here to reflect the love of God and as you live out this faith in all aspects of your life in the community. We are called the church together. We have this, and some of you know this verse, we have this treasure. What's the treasure? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What tremendous hope. We might, we might not look like much. I mean, I'm looking out at you right now. You look great. We might not look like much. Resolutions aside. But the Christian gospel, and I say this with all my heart, the Christian gospel is still the light of the world. Put your faith in him. Desire that others would put their faith in him. But let go of the fear. When we see Jesus Christ, we see the character of God. Let me pray for the communion. I've already said that this table is for those who know Jesus Christ or desire to know Christ. I also want to say a word to anybody who would choose not to receive it. That you are not a second class citizen. What God has done for us, God, we, we believe God has done for all people. There's no second-class citizens ever in this, in this building, in this church. So if you are in a place of not receiving, you can simply let it pass by. There's no judgment, or there shouldn't be, um, from one to another. This is the bread. Jesus took this bread and broke it and gave thanks and said, This is my body broken for you. After supper, in the same way, he took the cup and he said, This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And he said, do this, you know it, in remembrance of me.
Our life is in Him. So Heavenly Father, bless this communion as we receive it. And let us hear Your Word. And let us see the light of the Gospel even in the fog of our lives. The one true hope. Let us put our trust in You even as we receive. As we, from one another, we pass this little basket with these, I think in this church we used to call them emblems. Or their Eucharist. Or their communion. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. And as we receive, we declare our faith in you. Bless us for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.